This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show we have Shane Nichols. Shane is the CEO of Good Return, where he leads a multidisciplinary team working on financial inclusion initiatives across Asia and the Pacific. Shane has been working in inclusive finance and enterprise development for the past 18 years, having worked with dozens of financial service providers and social enterprises across the Asia-Pacific region. Prior to joining Good Return, Shane worked as a program manager and microfinance focal point for Australian aid in China and Mongolia. And in addition, Shane was a founding member of the Australian Financial Inclusion Network. Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you have a very interesting bio, um, and I think I probably only skimmed the surface with that bio. So, to get us started, could you explain how you came to be in the role that you're in now? Well, the journey has been uh, an interesting one over the last 20 years or so. I was living in China in the late 90s and I was working as a journalist and editor for a newspaper and uh, I went on a trip around Western China by motorbike. Um, I was traveling for a couple of months and at one point I picked up a hitchhiker He was a local guy who had been working on a road construction site. Um, He was covered in soot and dust. And I gave him a ride back to his village. And when we got there, he invited me in for a cup of tea. A very Chinese thing to do. Um, And I was grateful for that because I'd been riding all day. Um, And we went into the the house that he lived in and it was a one room hut. It had a, a dirt floor. Uh, bamboo walls. Um, his his elderly grandmother was lying on a rug um, on the on the floor, and um, they were clearly a very poor family. And um, he sort of he stoked up the fireplace that was in the middle of the room of the hut, and um, to to make me this cup of tea. Um, he didn't have any tea leaves, as it turned out, despite being in China. Um, so he, he heated up this, this water for me, but there was also a potato in the coals from probably from their dinner the night before. 
And so he warmed up the potato at the same time and, and he proffered it to me and said, you know, eat the potato. And I said, no, no, I don't want the potato. I could see that they had virtually no provisions. And, you know, with Chinese hospitality being what it was, he, he kept asking me again and again to eat the potato. And so in the end, I did. I felt that I, I should um, as a guest. Um, but I left there sort of feeling very inadequate. I, I kind of felt like, gee, I, should I give him money? What should I do? Clearly, they're very poor. Um, and I really just didn't know what to do. And so I left and I, I felt very inadequate afterwards. Now, about a week later, by coincidence, I met um, a British person who was working as a volunteer for a local microfinance organisation. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard of microfinance. It sounded interesting. I said, can I come along um, with the intent of perhaps writing a story about it? And I went out to visit the programs, uh, visited the villages. I met the woman that started the organisation. And um, I was immediately captivated. And I, I really just thought back to that guy that I'd met the week before and thought, gee, if his village had something like this, their life could be very different. Um, so that was sort of, that got me started. I came back, I studied a master's degree in international development. I did my master's research with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in China, researching one of their pilot microfinance programs. And um, and one thing led to another, and 20 years later, I find myself um, with a microfinance organization that I've been with for most of that time, the past 16 years. Wow. That, that is an incredible story. That's just amazing. I'm interested in how you came to be a journalist in China in the first place, and if you felt like by transitioning into international development, you were somehow kind of relinquishing a career in journalism? Uh, look, it was, a, it was a passing thing for me. Um, I did it for a couple of years. Um, in the late 90s, there weren't a lot of, um, of Westerners in Beijing that had writing skills. And so I, I got called upon to do all sorts of things. But my, my favourite work was actually working with the Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, I used to write for their China Agriculture publication, doing research on agriculture in China. So it was interesting pieces that I used to get to work on, um, but I never really felt that writing was my calling. But um, I wrote a few pieces and one thing led to another. I got called up by different agencies and I worked for actually a Chinese, um, Chinese-owned English language newspaper that was targeted at university students. Um, and that was, that was a really fascinating time because I got to see, you know, the inner workings of how a Chinese media works. Um, and, and we were very fortunate because it wasn't a foreign facing audience. It was a local audience. And so, um, they weren't as scrupulous in terms of, um, in terms of their image and the, and what was portrayed in our newspaper as, as for example, some of the the China Daily and, and some of the other publications out of China that are targeted at the foreign audience. So it was a really fascinating time. But uh, for me, when I discovered uh, international development and microfinance, my passion had already been for a number of years um, traveling and working and living in developing countries. And so I really felt that I'd found my calling. Yeah, well, definitely. And as you said, 20 years on, you are now the CEO of Good Return. Um, so can you explain? a bit about your role and the work of Good Return uh, with the lens of why is what you do at Good Return important? So Good Return is a for-purpose organisation and we're focused on building pathways out of poverty through an explicit focus on access to financial services as well as 
enabling people to develop the financial capability to use those services well. Um, we've got a fantastic team. They're spread. We've got 50 people involved, uh, of whom about half are paid and half are volunteers in different capacities, both in Australia and overseas. Um, and they're all working on a range of financial inclusion projects. And really our work encompasses three main areas. So it's access to responsible finance. So we fund micro loans and we also support loans to small and medium enterprises that are generating employment and incomes in rural areas. The second area is financial education and financial capability to ensure that people are able to actually use their money well and to benefit their family. And the third area is what we call better banking. And it's really working at the um, policy level um, with sort of peak bodies and associations in each of the countries that we operate in to foster a more responsible and inclusive financial services environment. And so our teams sort of span those three program areas across a number of countries in Asia and the Pacific. And and my role is, is just to uh, help hold it together and support the teams because they're they're able to do their work um, incredibly well by themselves as long as they've got access to resources. And so a big part of my job is, is you know, to ensure that we've got the resources that we need um, and the systems and frameworks to make it happen. Okay, so if we, if we look at the banking sector specifically um, in this region of the world, we've seen some pretty significant shifts in recent years around banking institutions. Um, my my view of that and what I've seen is some Australian-led banks um, such as ANZ are sort of uh, almost shutting down their branches in parts of the Pacific and, and um, handing over the institutions to locally owned and run banking institutions. Am I on point with that trend or can you sort of comment on the, the trends we're seeing in banking broadly in this region? Look, I think at a big picture level, it's um, it, it's a very interesting sector at the moment and it's a tough sector to be in for banks. Um, I mean, my personal view is, is we could fast forward, you know, 20 years or maybe less um, you know, banks are not going to be the dominant player in in most forms of financing at that point. Um, you know, with the rise of of payments, um, you know, things like uh, Ant Financial, um, which used to be Alipay, you know, WeChat, different different gateways that are being used um, that have large audiences that are providing consumer finance. Um, they're really taking a lot of market share from banks um, and they will, they will continue to do so over the next 20 years. And so banks are being forced to you know, reconsider their strategy. A lot of banks are investing in digital offerings. They're investing in sort of tech startups. They're experimenting and trying to find their place in the world because their place in the world is definitely changing. Um, yes, it's true. So Westpac sort of withdrew their operations in most of the Pacific. Um, they're, they're now only operating in, in Fiji and, and Papua New Guinea. I think that just reflects the challenges of operating in the Pacific where you've got low population densities and, and fairly low levels of economic activity. It's, you know, it's hard to, to run a lot of forms of business, including, um, it's including banking. Um, and so, yes, I do think Australian banks and banks around the whole region and globally are really having to reinvent themselves. And, and the other side of the coin is, 
you know, consumer expectations, uh, I think, are changing. People are expecting a more personalised offering, um, a more customised offering from banks. And if the banks aren't able to deliver, then those customers will go to someone else who does. Yeah, no, but I think that's a really interesting comment that um, conventional large institutional banks are losing some of their relevance in you know, broadly, but particularly in the development sector. When we think of those traditional banking institutions, though, um, historically, have how have those banking institutions um, engaged with microfinance? I'd say it were reluctantly at first. Um, the microfinance sector has really evolved a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. During the 80s and 90s, it was, you know, experimental. It was sort of run out of government-funded programs and NGO-led programs. And it was really in the early 2000s that microfinance institutions became um, very commercially oriented um, around the world, um, significantly profitable. And so we did see a number of banks investing in microfinance institutions um, because they saw that there was there was some money to be made and an extension of their services, their financial services. Um, in fact, I think it was sort of around the late 2000s that the pendulum swung from the majority of microfinance institutions being not-for-profit to the majority being for-profit. And certainly the vast majority these days are for-profit institutions. Um, and so banks have have been late to the party, I would say. I mean, the whole emergence of the microfinance sector was because banks weren't doing their job in reaching rural clients. Um, however, once once microfinance became more institutionalised um, in various countries and more professionalised, um, you know, banks have, have been investing in them more and more. Um, having said that, you know, there is, there is still more money um, in reality in most places um, from operating with an urban clientele and a, and a much wealthier clientele. And so, you know, many banks are still reluctant to, to lend at that micro level. Yeah, and it's probably important background for us to um, provide here. I'm very uh, interested lately in financial literacy. And uh, in last week's episode, I spoke with Luke Brannigan from JB Weir, and we talked about how often these uh, financial terms, which to us seem pretty kosher, um, to the broader not-for-profit sector can be a little bit hard to engage with. And therefore, um, things like impact investment and microfinance can seem a little bit exclusive. And so I think sort of uh, helping to educate the broader not-for-profit sector on what we're talking about when we talk about things like microfinance is really important. At least I, I know for me alone, um, I, I always benefit from kind of going back to basics with some of these concepts. So I think on that note, microfinance, you know, could translate roughly as small scale finance or small lending. Um, could you explain what what we mean when we say microfinance and how it differs from larger scale finance? Sure. I think um, it certainly is small scale finance and it it's encompasses the whole range of financial services. So it's loans, it's savings, it's making payments um, and importantly, making remittances because um, a large proportion of, of microfinance clients are reliant on remittances from family members either working in other parts of the country or internationally. And so microfinance covers all of those services as well as insurance. Um, it's, it's more than just small amounts, though. I mean, you could argue that a credit card with a $1,000 limit 
is a small amount finance tool or or a loan from a pawn shop. Um, but we don't tend to regard them as microfinance. Microfinance is explicitly focused on low-income people and, and developing services that's suitable and appropriate for low-income people. Um, it has its roots in rural areas, but these days microfinance is provided in urban environments just as much as rural. Some of the characteristics of microfinance, you know, from the early days and, and the work of the Grameen Bank and BRAC and others, um, is less prominent in some of the products that we see today. So things like uh, group guarantees, which have been employed to overcome the fact that many people do not have access to collateral against a loan. They get their peers to guarantee um, their repayments on a loan. We still see that, and many microfinance institutions have group lending products that avail of that. However, nearly all microfinance institutions also do individual lending um, that doesn't necessarily require a group guarantee. And in many cases, they do require collateral for that individual lending. Um, <clears throat> some of the other aspects of microfinance are small, regular repayments of loan principal. So it's much easier for a, a family living in poverty to get together, you know, $4 a month than it is to get together $40 at the end of 10 months. Um, and so it's, it's one of the features of microfinance that breaking sums down into small amounts make them more manageable for low-income people. Um, another feature is that, again, with rural clients, taking the services out to them rather than expecting them to come into a branch. And so traditionally that would have been a credit officer, often on a motorbike, traveling out to a rural village, say every Tuesday at midday, um, meeting with the savings and credit group, um, accepting deposits, taking loan applications, dispersing funds. Uh, these days, Credit officers are somewhat being replaced by mobile phones and mobile technology, um, people accessing microfinance through technology, but there's still a lot of face-to-face -face microfinance and, and most of the organisations that I work with are still primarily operating through a face-to-face -face model. So I, so I think when we talk about microfinance, we're as much talking about how the banking sector uh, works with very low income people, uh, particularly people in rural areas, but as you said, also increasingly people in urban areas who aren't necessarily served effectively by um, mainstream institutional banks. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and in fact, the term microfinance is, is sort of falling out of favour or largely has fallen out of favour within the sector. And now people talk about financial inclusion. Um, and, and that really is about reflecting that the aim should not be to develop dedicated organisations to serve low-income people. Uh, the aim should be to bring everybody within the financial sector um, so that a whole range of financial service providers are, are serving the broad range of clients um, from different income strata. Um, so financial inclusion is, is very much about going beyond microfinance to say to the banks, you know, why aren't you serving this segment and showing them ways of serving that segment. But not only banks, insurance companies, microinsurance is, is quite a popular um, adjunct to, to microfinance now in most countries. 
um, because microfinance institutions are able to purchase policies and, and on-sell them to large numbers of clients at affordable premiums for those clients. And so there's a lot of innovation in the sector and obviously with uh, digital technology, um, those things are getting out to people at lower and lower costs, um, which of course increases the profitability then for the service provider and that attracts the attention of the of the conventional banks. Um, so I think we are seeing more inclusion in, in the broader banking sector. Um, however, you know, banks will only do it if it's profitable. And so I guess that's where that's where we see our role as Good Return and other social purpose organisations is working on that boundary between, you know, what's possible, but it's not yet happening within the sector and ha having the risk appetite to support some of those experiments, helping organisations to develop models um, to reach people that they previously didn't reach and importantly, ensuring that consumers are empowered to be able to make good use of those services. Right. Now, I think that's a really good segue into discussing exactly what uh, Good Return is doing in this space. So Good Return is not um, actually providing microfinance, if I'm correct, but you are working with institutions that do provide microfinance to support them to do things like increase their risk appetite. Is that correct? Yes, we do a couple of things. Um, we do actually have a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform um, which enables people to fund microfinance loans and that capital is provided to microfinance institutions to on-lend to their clients out in the villages. So we do provide some financing through microfinance institutions. Um, we also have a guarantee facility working with banks um, which supports and enables banks to do lending to small and growing businesses that they otherwise would not have lent to. So um, that they may not have lent to partly because they lack the banking relationships with those people and partly because those applicants may lack the collateral that the bank would require for their internal hurdles. And so by providing a guarantee, we cover some of that risk for the bank and make that loan viable for them. So um, we do um, fund loans in that respect, but a big part of our work is education within the sector. So we have uh, an e-learning um, initiative called the Responsible Inclusive Finance Academy or RIF Academy, and that is shared with microfinance institutions and their staff to learn about topics in responsible finance um, with the aim that the institution may pursue accreditation uh, in responsible finance. There's a global accreditation standard. And for organisations that achieve that standard called the SMART campaign, the institution can then access um, a range of subsidised um, investment from uh, social investment firms and funds all around the world. So there's a there's a definite advantage in there to institutions to get trained up and get certified in these responsible standards. Now, do most microfinance institutions that you work with identify as being for-profit organisations or does it sort of vary between being not-for-profit and for-profit? We are agnostic in terms of the organisational form that we partner with and so we have uh, not-for-profit financial service providers as partners, we've got cooperatives as partners, and we've got for-profit financial service providers as partners. And we don't really mind what their organisational form is. Um, our due diligence really focuses on, number one, are they serving clients living in poverty? And do they have a mandate and a, an intention to expand those services? 
Um, if they do, are they providing those services at fair and reasonable prices and are they offering them in, in an ethical way? Um, but we look for organisations that also are looking to grow. We look for organisations that are interested in building a financial education um, element to their work, so educating consumers in financial literacy and empowering them to be able to use their money well. And so we'll, we're willing to provide them support in those in those various areas. But the range of institutions uh, in the Pacific, our smaller partners have a few thousand clients. Um, to Cambodia, we've got partners who've got 160,000 clients. And so they're various shapes and sizes. Now, to illustrate this with an example, I know that you work in Fiji and Tonga. Um, so perhaps if we could talk about one of those countries, can you sort of share with us one of the microfinance institutions you work with there and just provide an example of how um, their work with Good Return has transformed things like their um, their risk appetite and, and their lending um, portfolio? Yep. So in the Pacific, we partner with an organisation called South Pacific Business Development, and they operate across a number of Pacific Island countries and we have a couple of programs with them. Um, so one program that we put in place in Fiji, together with them and with the Reserve Bank of Fiji, was we developed, um, it was actually the Pacific's first objective poverty measurement tool, uh, a tool called the PPI, or the Poverty Probability Index. Um, and what this tool does is it enables an institution to rapidly assess whether or not their clients are living in poverty. Um, it's a simple 10-question survey that's benchmarked against the National Household Income and Expenditure Survey data. Um, so we developed the first one of those tools and then we implemented it with the partner, South Pacific Business Development in Fiji. So when they take on a new client, um, the first thing that they do uh, when the client signs up is they get some biographical data and they assess their poverty level and put it in their database. And then each time a loan application comes in, they ask the same 10 questions um, so that they're able to assess, has that family um, moved in terms of their poverty status and over what sort of period um, are they seeing those changes happen? So that's sort of one program. Another area is uh, the responsible microfinance practices that I mentioned earlier called the SMART campaign. Um, there are seven principles to the SMART campaign, and each of them require a lot of change to policies and procedures for the institution and their practices. And so uh, one example is um, that the clients have the opportunity to express um, their needs and, and lodge complaints. Um, what we find with a lot of a lot of non-profit organisations is that they have the best intentions of their clients at heart, but they often don't have very good complaints mechanisms and complaints handling mechanisms. And so we help them to put in a complaints handling mechanism so that customer complaints can be heard, but also customer suggestions and feedback. So those sorts of things are being incorporated into their standard operating procedures. That's such an interesting example. And I'm particularly interested in um, the poverty metric that you discussed. For that particular metric, was that used as a way of determining which clients to lend to or was it simply used to measure how a loan um, affected poverty levels over time? Our partners, a number of our partners use this tool uh, across Asia and the Pacific, 
not many. In fact, I don't believe any of them exclude people on the basis of that score. Um, they tend to try to be inclusive rather than exclusive in their services. But what they do is when they've moved into a new village or a new area, they will assess the poverty stats afterwards and see whether or not that meets their strategic goals. So it does inform some of their strategy around new geographic areas that they might expand their services to. Um, but they don't tend to exclude individuals on the basis of their score. Um, but those scores then can be analysed a year later or several years later in order to track, you know, have there been any changes in, in the poverty status of their clients. Now, are there any particular examples of um, SMEs, small and medium enter enterprises, that um, you're aware have received loans? Do you have any examples of how that loan has transformed um, that SME and, and the livelihoods of the people involved? I can give an example of an organisation in the Solomon Islands that we've been working with. Um, they're called Coconut Pacific and they work in rural villages across the Solomon Islands, um, helping people to set up um, small businesses that produce virgin coconut oil. And so they have a piece of machinery that effectively crushes the coconut and extracts virgin coconut oil. Um, it's it's a sight to behold. It's got a lever um, and, and the person stands on the lever and uses their body weight to crush the coconut. But it's actually quite a large and sophisticated piece of equipment. It's got refrigeration and um, requires um, a generator to operate elements of it. Um, and so the total investment in this business costs about $25,000 to get set up. But what that does is it enables the value to stay in the community. In these communities, previously, people would harvest coconuts, often um, women and men, um, and the coconuts would be carried down to the waterfront. A boat would come by every so often and pick up the, the coconuts and pay them whatever price, um, whatever price was going at the time. Um, with the advent of these SMEs at the, at the village level, they're able to extract the virgin coconut oil and they've got a buyer. The buyer is, um, is Coconut Pacific, the organisation that we partner with. So Coconut Pacific helped them to provide the plant, um, help them t train them in how to operate the plant and they buy their offtake as well. Um, so they get about eight times the value um, from a coconut through that and it employs up to eight people at a time within the plant and also it harvests coconuts from around 150 households in a typical village. So it generates income and employment across the whole village. Wow, that's a fantastic example. So I, I think what, it, what I'm interested to understand better is the gendered component of this. Um, so I know from, from experience and I think sort of the understanding across the sector is, is that historically um, men have benefited more from um, microfinance programs than women. And perhaps that's an oversimplification, but uh, how how have you seen that trend changing and um, how sort of what um, mechanisms are in place to ensure that women can access microfinance um, in the same ways that their male peers can? Certainly the topic of uh, gender equity in microfinance has been a hot topic for quite a long time. Um, a number of studies have come out that have dispelled, I think, some of the myths that just by virtue of lending to women that, that you're empowering them. Um, we know that quite often um, women are, 
where, where microfinance programs are targeting and exclusively targeting women, men will encourage their wives to go and take a loan. Um, the man might use the money for their own purposes um, and then the woman's accountable for the repayments. So that's clearly disempowering. Um, we also know that in some cases where women have suddenly got access to, to, to loans or other forms of finance, um, the men in the household will see that as threatening um, and there have been a num numerous cases of domestic violence. Um, and so these are things that we actively factor into our programs. So, for example, when we work with a microfinance agency to develop a financial education program, um, that will often start with um, a community awareness raising process um, that invites the men um, along to that session to explain what the session is all about, that it's for the benefit of the whole community and the family, um, and to try to dispel any, any concerns that they might have about, about women in the community participating. Um, in terms of the control of the money, um, we're always encouraging and our partners are always encouraging decisions to be made at a household level. So it's not by the man, not by the woman, but getting together and discussing their financial situation. Um, and so <clears throat> there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of different approaches. There are a number of tools that we use. We use a tool that was developed by Oxfam called the Rapid Care Analysis Tool. And what that does is it looks at the, the work within a household um, and the gendered roles within the household and who carries um, you know, responsibilities for different things to make that more transparent. And, and that has had some really good results at a community level when those results are fed back. Um, men start to value and appreciate um, more um, the roles that women in the community play. And also it's, it's often made more explicit actually how much of the burden the women in the community are actually shouldering. Um, so bringing some of these things out, but bringing them out in a culturally sensitive way, I think is really important just to get the conversation going. Um, and I think that um, there are really fantastic opportunities for women's empowerment through microfinance, and we've seen lots of examples of that as well. It just needs to be done deliberately and mindfully. Yeah, because I guess around impact investment, we, we have a lot of conversations on impact investment on this show, and uh, there seems to be a similar trend in recent years towards looking specifically at a gender lens approach to investment and, and how can we ensure that uh, women are receiving impact investment um, as accessibly as their male peers are, which I think is a good segue into the overlap of impact investment and microfinance. Um, so do you see impact investors sort of getting into the microfinance space um, or do they remain quite exclusive of one another? I think it's quite interesting. I, I think that microfinance is really the, the original large-scale form of impact investment. Um, so, and, and I've seen a number of impact investment um, funds launched in recent years that have had aspirations to fund uh, SMEs and, and growing businesses, women-run businesses, etc., that have actually struggled to find deals and ended up investing in microfinance institutions um, because it's a lot easier to invest in a regular, regulated financial institution. It makes your whole due diligence process a lot easier um, and they've got a demonstrated track record. So certainly there are a lot of impact investors investing in microfinance um, 
and I would argue that microfinance really, you know, was, was one of the first mainstream forms of impact investment. But the impact investment community is obviously aiming to go beyond microfinance. And, you know, when you go to impact investment conferences, you know, microfinance isn't certainly isn't a mainstream feature of those conferences. Um, but I think it does reflect some of the challenges in the impact investment sector that that funds are often reverting to investing in microfinance because of some of the challenges in finding other uh, or structuring other investments. The trends we see in impact investment are also around intermediaries and the existence of intermediaries. And um, you and I were both in Jakarta last year where where we discussed this with um, a number of industry peers around how there are plenty of financing um, institutions, there's plenty of impact investors, um, there's also plenty of entrepreneurs and recipients of um those investments and loans, but what's lacking is intermediaries to connect the two. And would I be right in saying that that's that's an issue in impact investment um, and also an issue in microfinance, in, in how microfinance institutions can connect with small and medium enterprises? I think it's definitely a constraint in the sector, and I think the impact investment sector is, is crying out for more intermediaries that can help, um, help structure deals for them. Um, there's certainly ever ever growing amounts of capital available. Um, it, it is a challenging space to work in. There's there's no doubt. Um, we we have found through our own activities that, um, for example, when we're negotiating with a bank, um, I'll, I'll give a simple example. You know, I've got a I've got a home loan with a bank. It's a single loan for five hundred thousand dollars. Now, if a bank is going to lend to a small business. Uh, $1,000, they've got to lend 500 loans to, to lend the same amount of capital that they lend to me in a single transaction. And so the operational costs of doing that for the bank are very high. And so small loans are expensive to deliver. And, and that's why microfinance has been a niche sector. Um, I think that challenge remains even when you go to $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 banks have got more profitable business at the bigger end of town. Um, and so part of the, the challenge for intermediaries is, is finding sustainable ways of doing that. And again, with digital technology, I think there are going to be more and more opportunities to, to address some of the information asymmetry that exists, which is one of the challenges in the sector, um, as well as just better flow of information and faster flow of information out to clients and, and to funders. Um, but technology also requires a certain degree of standardization and impact investments are often bespoke, um, on, negotiated on a bespoke basis. And so who knows with the, you know, with the emergence of artificial intelligence and, and data science, maybe that will get more sophisticated in terms of helping to, you know, leverage some of the opportunities that digital presents in the impact investing space and that blend of sort of automation with with uh, bespoke offerings. Um, so I think there is opportunity for technology to play a role, but it's, it's not only going to be driven by technology, it'll be new business models, new market actors, um, probably those that are closer to the source um, rather than necessarily international agencies always playing this role. Um, so the emergence of local players, you know, playing that that facilitation and intermediation role, I think is something that hopefully we'll see more of in the future. Yeah, I think that paints a great picture of the direction that the sector is going in. Um, 
So to close, my my last question for you then would be, uh, what does success look like for um, these transformations that we're seeing, particularly um, digital banking? Um, What would success for that look like 10 years from now? Well, for me, success would look like uh, complete financial inclusion. Um, Everybody has access to the financial services they need. Um, and they use them at their own discretion um, to meet their own life goals. Um, For me, more broadly, um, for the development sector, um, achievement of the sustainable development goals, and in particular for us, goal number one of no poverty by 2030, I I really hope to be able to hang up my hat in 10 years' time and say, you know, we did our small part in helping to bring about an end to poverty. I, I do a, some lecturing at Macquarie University, and one question I always ask the students is, do you think this goal is is achievable? And it's always a minority of students that put their hands up. And then I show them the statistics that 30 years ago, 36% of the world's population lived in poverty. 200 years ago, it was closer to 90%. And yet, fast forward to today, and we've got less than 10% of the world's population living in poverty. And when you plot that out on a graph and you look at the trajectory, you see that, yes, by 2030, we can actually do it. Um, We have the know-how to do it. We have the resources to do it. And the only question is, do we have the political will? Um, And part of our job is is generating that political will, advocating and and promoting. So um, for me, um, an end to poverty is the end goal. And financial inclusion is a big part of that. Fantastic. That's really well put. Thank you so much, Shane. Um, Your insights have been so valuable. I've learned so much and it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Rachel. 